You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. My personal mission statement is three words long. I am light, and we'll get back to that. Now, last month, I gave my first public speech in 40 years. The previous one was to my graduating class at UT Austin, and the year before that, I gave one there too. So it was a big crowd, but put the fear of God into me for 40 years. Well, this time in January last month, I was a guest at this show Yuli Chintapali put on called the Innovation MD Summit. And something strange happened after my talk. A group of us were handling a Q&A, and I was getting a lot more attention than the vascular surgeon next to me. My talk was blasting a myth that the triple aim is not achievable. Now, the triple aim, for those of you who want to know what that is, is you can't have all three of these things, happy patients, population health, or lower costs. One is going to suffer. And I said in my talk, we're way past triple aim with direct primary care. In fact, we're way past quintuple aim. We're at sextuple aim. And before I can explain, the vascular surgeon wrestled the mic away from me and said, I'm dealing with a real world here, unlike Snow White on my right. And she wasn't being subtle. She's pretty sure she's from Brooklyn like my guest today. Y'all would be very proud of me that I didn't scrap in the dirt like I should have had I been in Brooklyn. Remember, I am light. I told you I'd get back to that. I said I'm living in a future where everybody wins, the patient and the doctor and the employees and the employers and population health and costs decline. There's the sex to blame. So I had officially blown the mind of my vascular surgeon friend, and she had some attachment to a world where not everybody wins, and this is the thing, I am light. So I tell you this story because Walmart is shaving a billion dollars off their healthcare spending by using direct contracting with centers of excellence, and they didn't have to sell $96 billion in equivalent goods to get that billion to the bottom line. In other words, they didn't have to build 1,471 stores last year to drop a billion to their bottom line because they found buried treasure in their healthcare spend. 99% of American companies have buried treasure in their healthcare spend, just like Walmart. And in accounting, they call this unrealized gains or profits. So today the new hero is the HR director or VP, is the CFO, is the CEO championing this new cool golden shovel because these three types of folks are recovering buried treasure in the healthcare spend by paying for a new shift and employee benefits. And it's a toolkit that we'll be talking a lot about this year, which includes direct primary care and other things. Everybody wins sidestep bloat and waste and administrative burdens that we didn't create or even get a vote on. So we walk away from the old ways with our pocketbooks and we vote. I'm betting you're gonna vote my next guest as your favorite all-time guest. He's no doctor. He's not even Kevin the manager. But now you know I'm talking about Cal Fussman and he's not even a thought leader in healthcare. He's not even in our field of healthcare, but he's spoken a lot to good folks like Kaiser Permanente. He's spoken to many of the hospital associations, and he's on the short list for many others. 
and I could not be more pleased to introduce you lucky devils to this brilliant Cal Fussman, who's a New York Times bestselling author, a longtime award-winning Esquire writer, a corporate consultant extraordinaire and host of the Big Questions podcast. And at the end of the question, I'm going to save Cal from my surprise question by telling you what his banner would say, because I know what it'll say if he's flying it over America. It'll say, change your questions, change your life. And that is his link to our primary care cures world today. Cal asked my son to join Larry King's breakfast table in LA that he's been hosting for a long, long time. And that touched me right into my soul. And so I'm excited to have you see how he can touch your soul today too. Not only has he spoken to Kaiser and these state hospital associations with General Motors, Apple Music, Facebook, Pixar, Samsung, Nike, Dell, the list goes on and on and on. All right. So why should we care about this story today? The big questions. Well, let's ask Cal Fussman. Cal, why should we care about the big questions in healthcare? I couldn't think of a place that would be better served by some big questions. <laughs> That's so true. You know, let's look at it this way. You're going to get me started right off the bat, give you a little introduction later on, but I need an explanation. You see, I go into the grocery store, and if I want a gallon of milk, I walk up to the dairy section, I can see all the milks, I can see all the prices, and I can make a choice, and I can walk out, and then... I can go to the cashier and she's gonna tap a few keys, ask me for a certain amount of money on a pay up, and I'm gonna leave a happy camper. When you think about healthcare, it's sort of like going to get a quart of milk and you pick it up and you go down to the register and you're told, oh, just take it. Don't worry, we'll tell you how much it's going to cost in a few weeks or a month or so. And it really has opened my eyes because we got to start asking ourselves the question, why is the system the way it is? That is so true, Cal. Um, look, everybody has a personal story about healthcare. It's extremely personal, especially when it's your family or yourself involved or your pocketbook because it not only affects something deeply personal like our health, but it affects our finances. And there used to be a compact back in the day where you go into the nest of an employer and you felt safe, not only financially, but you felt safe medically. You knew you were going to be taken care of when you had good health insurance. But something changed along the way, didn't it? Yeah, and I don't know where this lack of transparency came from, but I think that it's hurting everybody. And I think that we got to start asking some questions wherever we are in, in healthcare, uh, because it just seems like even when I speak at hospitals, uh, I'm finding out that, of course, you got privacy laws, HIPAA laws, but quite often there are amazing stories going on in hospitals that we just never hear about. And I say we as the public, but even worse, people who are working in the hospitals often don't hear about amazing things happening in their own hospitals. Uh, there's this idea that, well, this is what we're supposed to do. We go into work and we save lives. Uh, but my feeling is that almost wherever you look in healthcare, if you start asking questions like, why aren't you letting 
the great stories about what you do become more known, we got to pay attention to those answers because I think it's important for those stories to get out. And I also think it's important to ask questions about physicians. And they're in a very vulnerable place. It's, it's not a secret because what I've been told is that literally, if you look at the numbers, every day a physician commits suicide. There's so much stress on these physicians and they're not allowed to be vulnerable. And I think we gotta start asking questions about that. Uh, how do we give physicians a space to be vulnerable, even if it's among themselves, uh, to just push aside some of the tension that's on their shoulders? So Cal, we have booked a guest that is a worldwide expert on sham peer reviews. I didn't know what that was this morning when I woke up, but I do today. A sham peer review means, let me give you an example of a doctor. She was an ER doctor. Um, she's a beautiful lady and a very smart lady, and she was working alone her shift, and there was no security guard. And what police do in her town is if somebody has an alcohol problem, they, don't, they cannot book them and put them in jail because it's just uh, it's not a drunk tank. It's not a dry tank. Instead, they take them to the ER. And they took this extremely violent man, much larger than her, into the ER, and she said, where's security? And she starts calling security because he starts assaulting her. And there's no security. And in fact, there's no protocol for this. So she wrote an email immediately after the incident to the right people at her hospital. And they immediately started getting videotape of nurses saying it wasn't that bad. She's a little bit crazy. She smelled like alcohol that morning when she came in. A sham peer review is, is done, I don't know, maybe daily when somebody makes trouble in the hospital. And what they do is they run you out of your, not only just out of that hospital, they run you out of your career. So she got called in front of the, the right guy. We'll just say, we're not going to name names or, or companies, but, or even ideas who she talked to, but she talked to the right guy. And he said, you should have come to me directly and not written that email. We now have something on record. We don't want on record. And he didn't tell her that she was building a case, but she called her mentor. And the mentor said, you need to start looking for a job immediately. You need to put on your happy face. You need to complain not one more time in the next 90 days while you're looking for a job and you need to get the hell out of there. And she told me that my expert that she's going to, she has referred me to is going to tell us that that is one of the leading causes of suicide, because not only do you not have a career at that hospital, you have no career in medicine because you are a troublemaker. Oh man. Did you know that? I did not know about this at all. Uh, this is crazy. This is absolutely nuts. It's made up stuff. And, and everybody rallies around the hospital because you don't want to lose your job and you don't want to be next. But it's a, it's a target assassination. Now, a gentleman won a $5.5 million lawsuit a few years ago, and another woman won one for $4 million this year fighting it. But it took one guy 19 years. And let's, let's do $4.4 million divided by 20 years. It's not a lot of money compared to what he could have earned or 5.5 million, but in the end, you have to go work for an insurance company and answer telephones. You have to do uh, a shift as like a sophisticated medical assistant. You can't operate as a doctor when your license is pulled and your, your career is pulled. And you spent $230,000, $350,000 to get that degree for the privilege of serving people, and now you're, you, all that debt is hanging over you and you have nowhere to go. How about that? that? That's just startling to me. You know, it reminds me of the expression, Ron, a reputation is earned in drops and lost in buckets. And 
when somebody is faced with just losing their reputation and not being able to find a job, you could understand the level of tension on that person, especially if they owed a huge amount of money. I mean, is this a, a, a common thing? Because I had never heard of this before. I was sitting at that conference I referenced earlier in California, and there were seven doctors sitting around me, and they were all nodding their heads. This is how the this is the pressure they have on us. Oh man! Well, this see what I'm doing. I'm going out to speak in Florida next week to a group of physicians. And I'm not even going to speak. I'm just going to ask some questions. I, I need to know what is going on because we're in a place where we have to care for the people who are caring for others. It's that simple. And if we don't take care of those people, who's going to take care of us down the road? Mm -hmm. That's the best question. So, that is a great question. Well, the more you can educate me, the more I'll appreciate. Maybe I should start interviewing you, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cal, you're the best, and I would have to wear my steel armor. Actually, that's not true. You're a great interviewer, and you feel like you're your best friend in the first three minutes because you're professional. You know exactly what you're doing. I try to get to the essence of people, and I think that's one of the reasons that people have come to trust me over the years. Well, and you're a sweet guy. And I'm really, it's cool to have watched how you've reinvented yourself. You have gone from a world-class writer that everybody is excited to be interviewed by to a consultant now. And you're helping, you helped my chapter in Houston with Entrepreneur Organization. And for those of you EOers listening, what a speaker. He got rated a 10 on all, all stripes. So this is a guy that you want to come have speak to your chapter. But what Cal talks about is he makes you think and he makes you laugh and he makes you wonder why you can't convert your life into a better series of questions that will change your life. Cal, I, I watched, um, I've been watching your career for a while and I've been following everything. I got to tell you, I think I have about 10 favorite stories, but I want to kind of start with your favorite bus ride you ever took in Brazil. Can you tell the story about how you became a nomad for 10 years and that resulted in an amazing bus ride to Brazil? to the middle of nowhere and what happened on that bus. All right, well, this would have to start back as a young man. I had grown up wanting to be a newspaper columnist back in the day where that really meant something. Uh, being a columnist for a big city paper was like better than being the mayor. Uh, you went out and saw all the great sporting events and knew all the important people and having great conversations in bars at the end of the day. And that's what I wanted to do. And actually, by the age of about 23, I had achieved that. And then I was invited to go to work at a magazine, New York. It's an amazing magazine called Inside Sports was created to compete with Sports Illustrated. It was just phenomenal talent. And this wasn't even a job. It was an every day was an event. And you'd show up and the gonzo journalist, Hunter S. Thompson would be at the bar after work or Pulitzer Prize winners would come in. I'd, I'd be sent out to Pittsburgh to interview the Steelers while they're going after their fifth Super Bowl ring. And it was heaven, except for one thing. Uh, while the magazine was a commercial success, it wasn't such financially. So it went belly up. And I didn't quite know what to do. So I thought, 
you know what, let me take some time off and just try and figure this out. So I call up my mom and dad and I say, you know, I'm gonna just do a little traveling, go around the world for a little while. And my mom says, oh, she's always very supportive. That sounds great, wonderful. Little did she know when I said it that I wasn't coming back for 10 years. And this trip took me around the world and it took me in a very peculiar way because of four words. And those four words were, I had no money or very little money. And so this is how the trip unfolded. I would go to train stations or bus stations and just ask for a ticket to the next destination. Didn't matter to me where it was going. What mattered to me was the trip down the aisle. So I'm walking down the aisle and I'm looking for an empty seat, a specific empty seat, empty seat next to somebody who it looks like I can trust, somebody who might be able to trust me because by the end of the trip, a conversation will have started. And when that train stops, I basically need that person to invite me home because otherwise I got no roof over my head. So I'll tell you how seriously I took this, Ron. If I'm walking down that aisle and I see a beautiful woman, she's got no rings on her fingers, she's smiling at me, could be a supermodel, I would just walk right on by because let's face it, there was no way that she was taking me home and I guess you're not able to see me, but I'm just not the kind of guy that walks into a bar and just gets taken home by, by uh, somebody. So for me, the most important thing was to find that trustworthy person. And you know, if it was a 93 year old Hungarian grandma, toothless, eating crackers out of her purse, that was fine. And so I would go up to the back of the train. I would sit down next to grandma, train would start rolling. And I would turn to her and say something like, what makes a great goulash? And of course she didn't speak English and she didn't, I didn't know how to speak much Hungarian. And so we're gesticulating back and forth. It's like a game of charades. But fortunately at the time, there were a lot of young people who were learning English. This was before the Berlin Wall came down. And they always were attracted to these conversations like metal filings to a magnet. Like He wants to know what makes a great goulash. And now you see grandma's chest start to swell. I'll tell him what makes a great goulash. And she's talking about her mother's goulash and her goulash and the care and the love and the ingredients she puts in. And then she turns to these young people who are translating. And she says, you know, I've been on this train for more than half a century. And I've seen some of you on the same train from time to time. Not one of you has ever asked about my goulash. <laughs> But this guy travels from thousands of kilometers away because he knows enough to find out about my goulash and you tell him he's coming home with me. Well, train stops, all of us get off, 
and grandma's in high gear. She takes me back to the house. She's calling her friends, relatives. And the next day, the next night, they're all around me. I'm sitting at the head of grandma's table while I lift up grandma's goulash for the first time. Slowly it comes up to my lips and then my eyes shut and my cheeks lift with rapture and the crowd goes wild. <laughs> they love grandma's goulash. <laughs> well, a four day party breaks out during which time another guy comes over to me and he says, by the way, have you ever tasted apricot schnapps? Because my father, he makes the best homemade apricot schnapps you're ever gonna taste, lives 45 minutes from here. You gotta come and try it. Okay, I say. We all go over after grandma's party to taste the apricot schnapps and another party breaks out. This one, about six days, during which time, Somebody else comes over to me and asks me if I'd ever seen the paprika capital of the world, Seged, Hungary. No. He takes me to Seged, Hungary because I cannot leave without visiting Seged as his guest. Basically, that's how I got around the world. Just pass dinner table to dinner table to dinner table for 10 years until one day, I get asked by the Washington Post Sunday Magazine to find the best beach in South America because that's where I was traveling at the time. So I go up to a city called Fortaleza because I had heard about this magical beach called Jericoacoara. It was like another place out of another time. Sand like the Sahara, the most beautiful parts of the Sahara, those dunes, up against crystalline waters of the Caribbean. They, they didn't even take money, I heard. You went with a sack of rice on your shoulder and you needed to get there by mule back in a, in a crude sailing vessel. So I went up to look for this place. And just as I got to the nearest city, as fate would have it, the first travel industry tour Tajeriquaquara had just been started, and the first trip by bus was leaving on Friday at midnight. So I get one of the seats, I got a few days to wait, and little did I know that on that Friday, a woman would call up this agency and said, I'd like a ticket to Jeriquaquara. And she's told, Oh, I'm sorry, we're all sold out. And she said, but I got to go. And the guy says, well, you're going to have to wait two weeks the next trip. No, no, I got to go tonight. If somebody cancels, can I get that seat? Sure, we'll call you back. Well, she doesn't wait. Every hour, on the hour, she calls back. Any tickets left? Any tickets left? Anyone cancel? Anyone cancel? No, 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 no. Finally, at like 10 o'clock at night, she calls and says, any tickets left? And the guy says, no, but you know what? I can tell you want to go to Jericoacoara very badly. So you know what? How about this? For half price, you can get a seat in the aisle. Great, she says. So at midnight, everybody's boarding the bus. I take a seat on the aisle in the middle. And just before the doors close, this complete darkness, this woman 
this silhouette. I couldn't even see her face. It just a silhouette comes up the steps, walks down the aisle, and just stands next to me. And I looked up in that moment in the darkness, and I knew, there she is. And we've been married for 27 years now, three kids, and that's how I got to the bus in Brazil. Cal. I'm, I'm smiling ear to ear because I've heard the story a few times and it, it just gets better every time. Um, you spent an elaborate chunk of your life, Cal, getting one solid punch in on a famous fighter. Tell me about why you wanted to get in the ring with that guy, what your strategy was to get your one good punch in, and how long did you work towards that one good punch? Okay, so the guy you're talking about, Julio Cesar Chavez, you know, I'm looking in my office. I'm so proud of that punch that I actually blew up a photo of me landing this punch so that it's like the size of a wall because it's one of my great accomplishments in life. But it goes back to a time when I was a kid and I, I loved boxing and I decided to enter the New York Golden Gloves. You gotta be 16. I never had trained. I didn't really know how to box. So I went to a gym. An old timer came up to me, looked at me, said, like, kid, you, like, you don't know what you're doing. You, you gotta take a year and like, I'll train you. I'll show you how to throw a jab and a right hand, how to duck and move and footwork. And I said to him, no, 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 no. I'm ready to fight now. I'm going in Golden Gloves, and the Golden Gloves were only like a couple of months away. And so when I get into the Golden Gloves, I quickly discovered this trainer was right, uh, because the guy that I am suddenly on the scale next to uh, looks like he's had about 120 fights before, and... And I, I know, uh-oh, this, this could be some trouble. And then as I'm going into the ring, there were 5,000 people. And for whatever reason, the crowd just exploded as I came into the ring. And like I couldn't really believe where I was. And I, I almost, I don't know what it was. You just lose track of what's going on i've never done it before and basically in the in the first round i'm like looking around this guy just pops me and knocks me down and the next thing i know i see like a hand with five fingers outstretched and another with one finger and then the first thing i hear is like six seven eight and i get to my feet and now i'm kind of awake and I'm looking around and I see this guy coming at me. His right hand comes back to hit me again, but the bell rings. I'm saved by the bell. And I go back to the corner and I said, you know what? I can, I can handle this because I could hit a punching bag with a fury uh, for three minutes straight. And all I had to do was just throw punches. And I'm telling myself, just go out there and throw punches, throw punches, throw punches. In the meantime, the referee has come over to see how I'm doing. And he's asking, how you doing, Cal? Or he didn't know my name. And I'm not answering him because basically I'm knocked out. So the referee stops the fight. 
my dad's in the crowd, he's brought his friends. It's a humiliating moment, which turns into this family story so that anybody who comes in from out of town and is introduced to me, first thing they hear of, hey, you ever hear the story of Cal and the Golden Gloves? So this goes on and on and on for years, for years, from the time I was 16 until the point where I take that woman that I've met on the bus home and I'm going to marry her. Well, what do you think? She speaks Portuguese. She doesn't even speak English. What do you think the first thing she hears from my family? Hey, do you ever hear the story of Cal and the Golden Gloves? So they, they explain it to her pretty well. And not long after that, I'm sitting down on a sofa, got a pretzel in one hand and a beer in the other, and Julio Cesar Chavez, undefeated, just about as many knockouts as he's had fights, is on the screen. And he's going in for the knockout, and I'm saying, finish him off, finish him off. And my wife hears it and says, oh, yeah, 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 I heard about you and the Golden Gloves. And I realized in that moment, Ron, that, oh man, one day I'm gonna have like a son or a daughter and they are gonna hear this story. I gotta redeem myself. So I turned to my wife and I said, you see that guy on the screen, Julio Cesar Chavez? He's like one of the greatest fighters of all time. I'm gonna fight that guy. Now, I'm, I was a magazine writer, so in my head I knew, hey, this has a pretty good chance of selling a story. Cal versus one of the great fighters of all time. I was working at GQ Magazine at the time. I went into David Granger, who was my editor, and he got the story sold. And for about six months, I trained at the Times Square gym in New York to get in the ring with Julio Cesar Chavez. Now, the beating that I took in this six months was pretty incredible, but you know, I started to learn how to fight. Now, of course, after this six months, I'm feeling really good. And, and finally, my trainer, who had fought for a world championship, turned to me and said, Cal, like, you, you know what? I, I got to give you credit. You really came a long way, but you, you don't understand. Like, now you're ready to be an amateur. That's way different from being a professional. And that's way different from being the best of the best of the professionals. You will not get a glove on Julio Cesar Chavez. And if he wants to finish this in two seconds, he's going to do it. So I don't know if you're going to get a chance, but who knows? Maybe he'll go in and just want to see what you, what you got and you'll get some kind of chance, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to go in and I want you to throw a left jab and then a right and then a left hook, and he's gonna catch him very easily. And then I want you to do it again. Left jab, right hand, left hook, and he's gonna catch him again. And I want you to move around, I want you to throw those same three punches in the same speed, over and over and over. Left jab, right hand, left hook. And so, I get in the ring, I'm moving around, left, right, left hook, left, right, left hook. He's catching it, he's catching it, catching it. What Harold told me was, if you're still around after about the 17th time you do that, I want you to throw left, 
right, and then come back with another right. And so we're moving around just like Harold thought. And after the 17th time, I go left, right, and boom, I catch him right on the jaw. And he kind of staggers back in the ropes and he looks at me and said, all right, all right, that's what you want. And then he starts coming after me. And now I am just running around the ring like it's in a cartoon. And he hits me to the body with one left hook. That was his famous shot. I mean, it felt like a Hoover vacuum cleaner hose was stuffed down my throat, down my esophagus. And then the switch was turned on and my whole stomach was pulled into the vacuum cleaner. At which time we had the president of the World Boxing Council there. He's signaling to the guy with the bell, like, ring the bell, ring the bell. Cal's gonna get killed. They ring the bell. I survived the round. I didn't go down, go back to the corner. My face is blue. And I should have mentioned this was up in the mountains of Toluca, Mexico. So basically, all the training I had done in, in six months was just wiped away by the altitude. But in that moment, Julio turned to me and he said, Oh, to the mice, you want another round? And I looked at him and I said, See, sí, mas. And, uh, and then we did another round. And I got beat up a little bit there. But the photos on the, world, on the wall, I can see me landing that shot. You, you spent six months of your life to get a shot in on a guy to bring back your reputation for your children. What a nice story that is. <laughs> you know what? And it wraps around to the beginning of the conversation about your reputation and how important that is to you. And so you, you have to protect your reputation at all costs. And it's, it's a reason also that I think that physicians need to be given a space among themselves to be vulnerable so that they can talk out any difficult feelings that they have uh, because there's just no reason that excess stress should be putting should be put on the shoulders of people who have to wake up every day to care for others Cal, it's, just, it's so sad to tell you this but most physicians the day they get that counseling or have that conversation or have that intimate talk with clergy they go right back into the meat grinder the next hour and they're just chewed up again all over it's not as if they people aren't trying to do this and deal with burnout which is over 65 percent of doctors particularly in primary care, what this show is about. But more so, it's just a bad model. You're, you're, the meat grinder is the meat grinder is the meat grinder until I discovered on the show a new way that everybody wins. And we talked about it at the top of the show, and we're going to talk about it in the next interview we're going to do, because I know your, your time is precious to you. So I want to kind of wrap up and ask, what is the best way for people to find Cal Fussman if they want you to come speak or consult in their company uh, and help them out? Uh, Cal Fussman, C-A-L-F-U-S-S, -S, like in Sam, double Sam, M-A-N, calfussman.com. Just go to calfussman.com and uh, you'll see there's a place where you can leave a message 
and it'll get rooted straight uh, through to me. Well, Cal, I want to thank you for coming to the show, and we're going to be bringing you back in the next show in a part two of this. So thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.